Thank you for joining us for today's Practical Living broadcast, and I pray that through this message that you will learn how to apply God's Word and truths to any situation in your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us. Well, today we continue our series of messages entitled, What to Do When. I want to talk to you this weekend about what to do when you don't get what you want. What to do when you don't get what you want in life. Our study in this series is the small little book in the Old Testament named after a man, Jonah. Many of you will recognize the name Jonah by the story of Jonah and the big fish, or Jonah and the whale, some folks refer to. But the story of Jonah is far more than that. It's a four-chapter book, small little book, 48 verses, that describe Jonah's interactions with God in various circumstances. And from Jonah's life, we learn what to do when certain things come our way, what to do when storms come our way, what to do when we're in a dark place, what to do when we need a second chance. And today, as I said, we're going to talk about what to do when you don't get what you want in your life. How do you handle those moments when you've been disappointed because you wanted or expected something and it did not come through for you the way that you anticipated or at all? And Jonah gives us a great lesson in this. To understand the book of Jonah, I've been using this little map for us. I'm going to take you back to it again as we see the story of Jonah unfolding very quickly here as we see it on this uh, graphic. You'll see that Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was divided during this time to ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah prophesied or spoke to or ministered to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north. During this particular time, there was a king who ruled over the northern kingdom by the name of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II, this reign happened about 750 B.C., so about 750 years before Jesus was born. And Jeroboam II led Israel into a time of great prosperity. Even though he was an evil king, he didn't really love God. Nevertheless, they had a great prosperous time, and everybody was doing well with one exception. There was a growing threat hanging over them, and that was the threat of the Assyrians, whose capital city was Nineveh. And Assyria was one of the first world powers in the Mediterranean, the Levant area of the world during that time. It was rising to conquer many nations. After the Assyrians will come the Babylonians, and then following the Babylonians will come the Medes and the Persians, and following the Medes and the Persians will come the Greeks, and uh, you'll, you'll remember the name Alexander the Great, and then after the Greeks will eventually come the Romans, and the Romans will be in place when Jesus is born in Israel. But at this particular time, it is the Assyrians that are threatening Israel. The Assyrians are extremely cruel people. And so, of course, while there's prosperity in the land of Israel, they also feel this potential threat hanging over them. God speaks to Jonah, this prophet, and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, to the capital city of the Assyrians, the enemies of Israel, and I want you to preach a message to them of repentance. Call them to change their ways. If they don't change their ways, they're going to come under my judgment, but you go and preach to them. Jonas is not going to do it. Don't want to go and preach to those folks. He goes down to Joppa, which actually is modern-day Jaffa, the southern portion of Tel Aviv. If you travel there today, it's a port city. He, he buys a ticket for a, a ship, uh, getting on a ship on the Mediterranean Sea to head all the way over to as far as possible to get away from God, and he runs to a place toward, to, called Tarshish. 
Of course, you know the story. While he's on the ship, there's this terrible storm that breaks out, and Jonah ends up being thrown overboard to calm the sea down. And when he's thrown overboard, he is swallowed by a fish, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. Now, what does Jonah do when he's in the belly of this fish? Jonah chapter 2 tells us that then Jonah did what? He prayed. He he had not prayed very much on the ship, but now he's praying in the belly of the the whale, in the belly of the fish. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble. He answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. And so he has this moment where Jonah gets right with God. He comes back into fellowship with God, recognizing that he's sinned in some way, and he's asking God to deliver him from his great trouble. Notice what happens next. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. As I reminded you of last week, this is the New Living Translation. Other translations say onto the dry land. I like that better because onto the beach sort of has the feel of going to a resort somewhere. This was not a resort moment for Jonah. This was a moment where the fish is vomiting him up on dry ground. When he's up on dry ground now, having spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, God speaks to him a second time. And we talked about that last weekend. What do you do when you need a second chance? That God is the God of second chances. Can I get an amen right there? He's the God of second chances and third chances, and he's able to redeem our lives. So he gives Jonah a second chance. He calls him again. Now, in this calling, Jonah responds differently. This time, what did Jonah do? He obeyed. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command, and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. So he obeyed God. He goes there, and he preaches the message. Here's the result of his preaching. We see in verse number 5, chapter 3, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on, put on burlap to show their sorrow, so they're in repentance. And the Bible says now God's response to their repentance in verse number 10, when God saw what they had done and how they'd put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. So here we see now the unfolding of the events as Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches. They repent. God says, I'm not going to destroy them. Now you would think that Jonah would have been thrilled with this. Because after all, he spent three days in the belly of this fish, repenting for having run from God the first time. So you would think that he would be in a place where he's finally gotten his heart right. He's preached this amazing message, and he's gotten a 100% response. Think about that just as a prophet or a preacher. I mean, if I get half the people to repent, I'm happy, okay? But here's Jonah, he preaches, and all the congregation say, hey, I believe what you're saying. We're turning away. We're going to put on some sackcloth and put ashes over us and a sign of our repentance. You would think that he would have been thrilled, thrilled. but instead we see what his response was in chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And what did he become? He became angry. So Jonah looks at the situation. Because God has now said, I'm going to forgive this group of people. I'm not going to destroy them. And Jonah feels like it's very wrong. He becomes angry and he prays to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. 
I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Instead of rejoicing over the fact that the Ninevites had repented of their sins, Jonah finds himself in a place of anger and depression, and in fact, literally wanting to die. He's throwing a little temper tantrum because he didn't get what he wanted. What do you do when you don't get what you want? What do you do when God doesn't give you what you want in your life? That's the question. God comes back to Jonah and he asks him a probing question, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry. Jonah, let's stop for a moment and really think about what's going on with you. Is it right for you to have this anger toward me? And again, that's a question for each one of us as well. When we don't get what we want from God, there's this tendency to be angry at God, to sort of pout with God, to pull away from God, to somehow feel as though we've been slighted by God and to have this sort of attitude toward Him. And God says, is it really right for you to be treating me this way, Jonah? Is it right for you to be angry because you didn't get what you wanted? And that is indeed the question that hangs over each one of us today and exactly what I want to talk about. What do you do when you don't get what you want? Let me share with you three things that I believe are vital for us to understand when it comes to knowing how to handle moments in life when we don't get what we want. And it's true for each one of us. There have been times in my life, I'm sure, I'm sure there have been times in your life when you asked God for something or wanted something and it didn't come through the way you wanted it to come through. And you and I have often had the temptation to be angry or frustrated with God about that. How do we better handle it? Three things. Here's the first thing that we must learn to do in those moments. We must learn to evaluate our view of God. Jonah's biggest problem his biggest mistake was this conflict with God's nature. He had a conflict with God's nature. See, Jonah was determined to make God in his image instead of allowing God to form him in a transformed image to be like God, to be more in the nature of God. Jonah didn't run away from God because he knew who God was. He ran away from God because, because he didn't know what God was. He ran away from God because he did know who God was. He understood something about the nature of God. And so that's what it caused him to run away from God originally. And you and I need to recognize that in moments when we don't get what we want from God, it's time to step back for a moment and say, let me really think about who God is. Because if he hasn't given me what I wanted, there must be a reason for it. And that reason must be tied into his nature or tied into his character. See, how you view someone will always determine how you relate to them. How you view another person will always determine how you interact with them, your response to them. And it's true when it comes to God, how you view God is going to determine how you relate to God. And so I want to take just a few moments this morning and remind you of who God is. And when you find yourself disappointed in life about something that you step back, so let, me, let me remind myself of who God is. Seven things that we know clearly about God. First of all, God is holy. And the word holy means he's separate. He's set apart. There is no one like our God. 
Our God is unique. God didn't create you in his image. didn't create himself in your image. He created us in his image. He created us to reflect his nature and character because he is separate. He is unique. There is no one like our God. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, as he has this revelation of God, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple, the angels were crying something to one another, and here's what, what they were crying, they were crying or calling to one another, holy, 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 here's a key word, two little, two little letters, is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory, who is God, he is holy, holy, holy. He is perfection. There is no imperfection in God. Who is God? Second of all, God is eternal. This is important because God knows the beginning from the end. He sees the big picture. And because he sees the big picture, sometimes he will say no to you about things that you wanted him to say yes to you about. But God says, no, I see the big picture. And because of my eternal nature, my capacity to see the beginning and the end, the best thing I can say to you right now is, no, I'm not going to give you what you say you want because it's not really what's best for your life. Many of you as parents will recognize this as you work with your children. They will often ask you for things that you know really in the long run will not be good for them. And you'll say no to them because you see the big picture. And God always sees the big picture. He is eternal. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is. There's that little word again. Who is he? What is he? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Thirdly, who is God? God is completely just and righteous. There's never a time that God is unjust or unrighteous. God always does the right thing. God never does the wrong thing. God's work in your life is always a work of justice. He is the just God. As Abraham was interceding with God about uh, Lot, his, his, his nephew Lot, in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's praying for the deliverance of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and the potential uh, removal of destruction from Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham makes this statement about God that you and I need to remember. Far be it from you, God, Abraham speaking to God, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth what do right. He always does right. And so when you don't get what you want, step back for a moment and say, let me, let me remind myself of who God is. I'm reminded that God is holy. I'm reminded that God is eternal. I'm reminded that God is completely just and God is completely righteous. And I'm reminded that God is, what is he? He's love. He's love. And whatever I'm going through right now, even though I'm not getting what I want, it still is a reminder to me to reflect on the nature that God never stops loving because he is love and his love is directed toward me. As 1 John 4 verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God because God, there's that little word again, what is it? Is. God doesn't just love, God is love. And so when you don't get what you want, you don't get what you want oftentimes because God's just loving you in that moment. He's reminding you of your love, his love for you. And then out of that love, who is God? God is gracious, 
compassionate and forgiving. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. And he is indeed a forgiving God. The psalmist in Psalm 103, if you've not read that passage recently, I would encourage you to read the entire psalm, describes the beauty of God's nature as a gracious, compassionate, and forgiving God. I'm only going to read you a portion of the 103rd Psalm. Look at what it says. The Lord, say it with me. Don't, don't run past that word. The Lord is who, who he is and what he is. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Okay. The psalmist goes on to say, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So God is compassionate, he's gracious, he's forgiving. That's who God is. And then God is, what is he? He's all wise. He's all wise. It's going to be quite interesting when we all stand before God one day and people who thought they were smart are going to realize how dumb they were. People who were proud of their intellect are going to realize how limited their intellect really was. All of our academicians and all of our great scientists and all of our great folks that have achieved wonderful and amazing things intellectually will stand before God and realize that they're absolutely foolish in the eyes of the all-wise God because there is no wisdom like the wisdom of God. He indeed is wisdom himself. The Bible says in Romans 16, verse 27, the, the, the writer Paul says, all glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. He's saying this is true. Verily, verily, God is the all-wise God. God. And then the last thing I'll mention here is that God is, what is he? He is sovereign. He's the sovereign God. The word sovereign is often used to describe a king, someone that rules over a dominion. The concept of sovereignty is someone who has supreme power and supreme authority. And God works in our world with supreme power, supreme authority. He works to accomplish his will even when we don't understand it or grasp what he's doing. That's why we see this reminder in the book of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He's the sovereign God that works in ways that you and I will never understand. So the first thing that you and I need to do as soon as you're in that place like Jonah was in a moment ago, as we saw him angry, frustrated because you didn't get what you wanted. Jonah wanted God to destroy the Assyrians. God was gracious to them and Jonah's mad about it. When you're tempted to be angry at God, step back and say, let me remind myself of who God is. Here's the second lesson for us today. Everybody still with me so far? No good? Here's the second thing you do. When you don't get what you want, reflect on what you're wanting for yourself versus what you're wanting for others. Let me explain this one to you. Jonah 
was happy as long as God was kind and gracious and loving and forgiving to him. He was thrilled in the belly of that fish that God was kind and gave him a second chance. He was happy about that. But he wasn't okay. He wasn't okay with God treating other people the same way. Now think about this just for a moment. One of the things that you and I need to be aware of in life is that God checks up on our attitudes toward other people. And sometimes the reason you don't get what you want is because you have the wrong set of attitudes toward other people. And God says, I'm not going to do this for you until you're willing to deal with some stuff inside of you that you have toward other people. Can I get at least a little amen right there? Okay. God says, until you deal with this attitude that you have toward that other person that you want me to judge, you're asking me for mercy and you're asking me for grace, but you're praying for judgment for them. You're hoping for judgment for them. As long as that's going on inside of you, I'm not, I can't give you what you want because there's a principle in God that, that, that if we want forgiveness, we must forgive. If we want mercy, we must be merciful. If we want grace, we must be gracious to other people. And oftentimes, God will stop you in your tracks and say, you know what? You're not getting what you want because there's some stuff inside of you that needs to be dealt with first of all. And this is especially true when it comes to people who hurt you, who've damaged or hurt your life in some way. There's a tendency for all of us to seek payback to them. God, please forgive me, but God, would you just teach that other person a lesson? Okay. Would you hang them by their toenails over the fires of hell? Okay. Until they learn their lesson, God. Have you ever prayed something like this? No, you may not have prayed it, but you thought it. Okay. Torture them. Torment them. God, whatever you've got to do, but teach them a lesson. But please forgive me. So we don't like to think that we think that way, but we do. And God says, you're asking me for stuff in your life. I'm just going to stop you right there because until you're willing for me to bless other people the way you want me to bless you, then there's a problem here that needs to be resolved. And this is how God's kingdom works. You may not like how it works, but this is the way it works. If you want to be forgiven, you've got to forgive. If you want mercy, you've got to show mercy. If you want grace, you've got to be gracious to other people. This is just the way the kingdom of God works very clearly. Jesus was asked the question one day, Lord, teach us how to pray. Show us, Rabbi Jesus, how to pray your way. We want to pray the way you want us to pray. And of course, as we talked about recently, Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So if we want this, we must do this. It's interesting that Jesus continues that prayer teaching us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we often stop right there. But Jesus doesn't stop his teaching right there. He continues on with these verses that we see in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Read the rest with me. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your 
sins. I would say that's pretty serious. Would you agree with me? So oftentimes in life, we're wanting God to treat us one way and wanting him to treat others differently. And that was Jonah's problem. Jonah wanted the love and grace of God for himself, but he didn't want it for other people. So what do we do when we don't get what we want? What's the first thing you do? As soon as you start being angry toward God, what's the first thing you need to do? Step back and think about who God is, right? I need to get my thinking right about the nature of God here. Is it right for me to be? No, it's not because I need to remind myself of who God is. And then second of all, is this, am I not getting what I want? Because maybe there's something in my life that I have toward another person that I haven't dealt with yet. And God's reminding me of some stuff about myself to help me to deal with this so that I can move on and grow in him and experience all the blessing he has in store for me. Now, there's a third thing that's necessary if you and I are going to to deal with these moments in life effectively. And here it is. You and I need to check our opinions. And boy, do we have a lot of those, don't we? It is so easy for us to place our opinions above God's opinion. Jonah had this problem. I think you would agree with me that Jonah had a very strong opinion about how the Ninevites should be treated. Did he not? He had a very strong opinion. He believed that the Ninevites should be completely destroyed. And so he was in that mode of thinking his opinion was better than God's opinion. In fact, I thought about this differently uh, yesterday as I was going over my notes for this weekend. I never thought about it quite the same as I will share it with you in this moment. But what came to my mind is that Jonah wanted to guide God instead of letting God guide him. Think about that for a moment. God, I think I know the better way to handle this. Don't you realize that these Assyrians are our enemies? And, and by the way, let's just fast forward into history a bit. And about 35 years later, the Assyrians actually do come in to the northern tribes of Israel and capture them and disperse them. And we have the 10 lost tribes of Israel. It's going to happen in the future. And Jonah is of the opinion, God, everything would be better off if you would just listen to me. I figured this out, God, and here's my opinion, and I believe that my opinion is superior to your opinion. He did not say it that way, but in essence, he was living that way. And oftentimes we live in a, in a manner that suggests that we think, we believe that our opinion trumps God's opinion. Our, our opinion is better than God's opinion. And anytime that's the case, what it means is that we're trying to guide God instead of letting God guide us. Or as the old saying says, we're putting the cart before the horse. Amen? Amen. And so we have to reorder our opinions. We have to subjugate our opinions to God's opinion. There's a man in the Bible that we studied this past year, and I hope you'll remember some of his study, the study that we did together on the life of David. I'm going to take you to David's life just for a moment and juxtapose David's life to Jonah's life and see the difference when it comes to opinions. David is highlighted in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. That's why he was chosen as the second king of Israel. He had a heart like God. After David became king of all of Israel, there was an event that transpired that put David in a situation where he had to make some decisions. Very much like Jonah had to make some decisions, David had to make some decisions. And let's see how David handled it versus how Jonah handled it. 
We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Look at this story. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. That stronghold was a place of, of refuge, a place where he could be protected. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley Rephaim. So David, notice this, so David, what did he do? Don't miss that little phrase there. So David inquired of the Lord. And what did he ask God? Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Here is David. He's now king. The Philistines don't want him to be king. You might remember that uh, there's a history between David and the Philistines. David has slain Goliath, and Goliath was a Philistine, and there's a lot of history and animosity between Israel and the Philistines and David and the Philistines. And so as soon as they hear that he's now king, they're trying to destroy him, and they come after him, and David has to go and hide. But instead of coming up with his own strategy as to what to do, the Bible says in this place of hiding, he asks God, shall I go and attack the Philistines? What do you want me to do? And then he asks this question as well. Will you deliver them into my hands? So he says, God, before I do anything here, I need to know what you want me to do. I'm asking you for your guidance. I don't want to guide you. I want you to guide me. Okay. Shall I go and fight them? And will I be victorious? Notice God's answer. The Lord answered him. What's the word there? Go. Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal uh, Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. As, as it continues here, the Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Now notice this phrase, once more. Say that phrase with me. And by the way, let me just stop for a moment. Anytime you're reading your Bible, don't rush through words in your Bible because sometimes just two little words can change the whole setting here because this is a, this is a transition point in the study here. So we saw the first time the Philistines came against him, but this is describing a second time. Once more they come against him. Once more the Philistines came and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Notice what does David do this time? Say it with me. What does he do? What did he do the first time? What did he do the second time? Would you agree that these are similar situations, right? The first time he was attacked by the Philistines. Second time he was attacked by the Philistines. The first time, what does he do? He inquires of God. The second time, what does he do? Inquires of God. And God answers him. What does he tell him? What did he tell him the first time? Second time he says, do not go. Do not go straight up. I'll describe this in, in a moment. So here's what I want you to see. David was wise enough to know that before he does anything, he needs to ask God. Are you hearing me today? Same situation. He could have said, well, God spoke to me last time and told me to go. I guess that applies to this time as well. So I'm just going to go and do what I did last time. No, David says, I'm not going to do that again because every situation is unique. Every situation is different. I need the guidance of God every day, every moment, and every set of circumstances in my life. They may seem to be the same, but God has the wisdom to know what might be different. Are you with me today? So notice what happens here. God says, don't go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. 
sends them on a journey around a, a grove of trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching of the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Now here's what I want you to see. God says the second time, he says, David, I don't want you to do what you did the first time. Are you listening to me today? First time, David inquires, God says, go. Second time, second exact situation. But instead of assuming he knew what to do, he goes back to God again and says, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, don't go up straight away this time. But I want you to go and circle around the trees because as you're circling around the trees, I want you to listen closely. And there's going to be some rustling at the top of those trees because I'm going to send my angels down and I'm going to fight for you this time. Amen. I'm going to do the battle for you. I'm tired of these Philistines attacking you this way. I'm going to fight the battle for you this time. And indeed, God did. And thank God that David listened to God because it was the difference in his victory or his defeat. What I want to say to us today, what I want you to hear, is that in life there's going to be times when you don't get what you want. You don't always get what you want in life. And when you don't get what you want in life, you can be a bitter, angry person with a chip on your shoulder. That's where Jonah was. He didn't get what he wanted, so he was angry. I'd just soon die, God, for you to do something like this to me, and all bitter and angry about it. And there are a lot of people, maybe you, and you're walking around with a chip on your shoulder because you're angry. You're angry about how your life has turned out. You're angry maybe at God for some circumstances in your life. You're carrying that chip on your shoulder. You're just bitter and angry at God. And God came to Jonah and says, is it right for you to be angry? And God comes to you today and says, is it, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry at God? In light of all that God is, he's a good God, is he not? In light of all that God is, step back for a moment and, and just look and Be reminded of who God is. Is it right to be angry with God in light of all that He is, His nature and His character? And and is it right to be angry at God when you want God to bless you, but you don't want God to bless some of your enemies? You've got some issues in your life with other people. Is it right for you to be angry with God because you're not getting what you want when in reality there's some issues that you have toward people that you need to get have addressed in your life is it right for you to be angry when you put your opinion above my opinion is it right for you to be angry at God when you're trying to guide God instead of letting God guide you I would assure you that if you'll use that little test those three little things every time you're tempted to be upset or angry with God because you didn't get what you want it turns everything around. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. Lord, so many times like Jonah, we've tried to guide you instead of letting you guide us. We've had attitudes toward other people. We wanted you to bless us, but we wanted you to curse others. We wanted your grace, but we wanted judgment for somebody else. There are times that we've forgotten 
who you really are, God. And so we've allowed ourselves to be angry and frustrated about something we didn't get because we blamed you. And I pray today in the name of Jesus throughout this worship center, through the worship center in, in Frederick, through those that are watching online, Lord, I know today just by the fact that we're people and I know today by your Holy Spirit that there are people in these rooms today that are angry at you. Maybe they haven't even realized it until today that they've been bitter, they've been angry, they've been carrying a chip on their shoulder because of something in their life that didn't get what they wanted. And I pray that today will be the day that you'll help them to let go of that and you'll remind them of the same question that you asked Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? And I pray that that penetrating question would bring repentance in our heart and a renewed trust in you today. You're a good God. You always do good. And Lord, you want to bless us, but you want us to be a blessing to others. And God, you want us to lay our opinions down so that your opinion can rule over our lives. Seal this word in our heart by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus... I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.